Will humans peril in the age of the machines? Why is artificial intelligence one of the scariest and most under-discussed topics of our time? And can we engineer ourselves to happiness? Big questions that we're deep diving into with Mo Gaudat, the former chief business officer at Google X, author of international bestseller Soul for Happy and newly released Scary Smart, and host of the Slow Mo podcast. In this episode, we discussed how Mo is on a mission to spread happiness to millions of people around the world, how he has figured out the equation to happiness, how the age of machines is fast approaching, but we still have a window to change the trajectory, and so much more. It's time to live wide awake. Hey, it's Steph Dixon, and welcome to the podcast. Here, we get into the minds of some of the most conscious humans around the world to understand how our actions affect our mental well-being, happiness, and the planet. Because self and planetary healing is really an inside-out job. So let's unpack this human experience together so that we can live wide awake. Mo Godat is the former chief business officer at Google X, host of the global number one podcast, Slow Mo, with over 900,000 downloads, a best-selling author and founder of One Billion Happy. After an impressive career of over 27 years in tech, including leadership roles in IMB, Microsoft, and Google X, and having co-founded more than 20 businesses, Mo has made happiness his primary topic of research and focus for his life. After the tragic loss of his son, Ali, Mo started his mission to help 1 billion people become happy. His first book, Soul for Happy, Engineer Your Path to Joy, which came out in 2017, culminates 12 years of research on the topic of happiness and features an algorithm he created and a repeatable, well-engineered model to reach a state of uninterrupted happiness, regardless of the circumstances in life. His second book, Scary Smart, is about the future of artificial intelligence and how we can save our world. We're going to be talking about all of this and much more. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really was amazed doing the research on you and just reading your bio and the books you've written. Just such a fascinating life you've had and led. So I'd love to share a little bit first about your career and how it's not only brought you around the world, but for working for some of the biggest companies in the world as well. So maybe you can give us like a high level overview of what were some of the highlights for you during that time. Okay. How much time do we have? No, so I, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having me, Steph, to start. I'm very grateful to be here. So I have, uh, you could say I have two lives, two very parallel, very, very prominent lives. One life is the engineer, mathematician, business executive, if you want. And the other is the happiness path that has been my, uh, my work for the last seven years almost. So basically I started, I was born and raised in Egypt. I was educated in public school and public university in Egypt. Didn't expect to go far in life, to be honest. I mean, my absolute dream was to be sales manager at IBM Egypt, where I started. I think life had a lot to surprise me with. So I went from IBM to Microsoft and then from Microsoft to Google. At the time where those companies were really changed the world, I spent 12 years at Google, of which seven, I was the uh, vice president of emerging markets. So that basically meant that I I opened almost half of Google's operations worldwide, which is Amazing. an incredible, incredible privilege. At the time, opening a Google operation would, was not about hiring a few salespeople. It was really about getting the internet right, getting the infrastructure in place, getting the language understanding on the internet correctly 
kickstarting e-commerce and the value, the economic value of the internet. So basically changing the country. So every, every country we went into, Google was leading in a way that basically changed the economy, gave people a democracy of information and that led to business opportunities and income opportunities and sometimes, you know, the Arab Spring or whatever, you know, as a, as a result of the democracy of information and knowledge, societies changed. So then I went to Google X and I worked at Google X, the innovation arm of Google for five years as the chief business officer. And uh, you know how it is, uh, second best uh, job in the world for sure. So this is my business uh, life, if you want. I co-founded more than 20 businesses in my life as an entrepreneur during that career. I still am actually the co-founder of two very active startups as we speak. One is in the e-commerce space where I'm the co-founder and CEO. The other is in uh, happiness, uh, where we're trying to use artificial intelligence to make people happier. So this is my business career. On the other hand, uh, I had the, uh, I think the not unusual, though very rarely spoken about life of having everything that I dreamt of by uh, late 20s. I moved from a very typical person in Egypt who, as I said, didn't expect much to having everything any man would ever dream of. So I had, you know, the big villa, the swimming pool, the car, the luxury cars, the most beautiful woman on the planet accepted me as her husband and you know, uh, gave me two amazing, amazing kids. And, um, you know, I had it all, really. I had all the money in the world. I had everything and I was completely miserable. And, uh, you know, interestingly, when you get to that space, it's a very different type of miserable because you have no excuses, right? So you can throw money at your problem and go on vacations and buy cars and go to lavish parties and buy Armani suits or whatever. And the problem is not going away. And so I had to face it, basically, that none of that stuff had any happiness inherent value in it. And so I had to, uh, I had to find a path. So I had to work on my own happiness in a way that was unusual. I worked on my happiness through uh, my engineering background, if you want. I started to think of happiness as a topic of research that requires you to do what we do in the lab, basically reverse engineer the machine of humanity to try and get to why we become happy or unhappy. And somehow that worked. I found uh, what I call the happiness equation and then built a happiness model on top of that. And through it all, you know, in my hyper left brain analysis, I had my wonderful son with me who was born a tiny little Zen monk, if you want. He, he knew, <laughs> yeah, he, he really, really, really knew happiness instinctively. He understood it in, at the heart level, not at the mind level. And so every now and then I would go to him and I would consult with him, even at as young as seven or eight years of age. And he would listen to me and entertain me with a couple of questions and then says, you know, yeah, Papa, you could have come and asked me. And, you know, he would explain what I found through rigorous analysis from the heart. And, and so mm -hmm. together the model worked. And as you know how life works, eventually when I really found my solid happiness, if you want, nothing would dent my happiness at all. 12 years or 14 years later, Ali sadly left our world uh, because of a, a mistake in a surgical operation that was um, not, not one mistake, sadly five errors by the surgeon, five in a row. Each of them was preventable, each of them was fixable, but you put the five in concession and, you know, and, and Ali left our world. And so instead of uh, crumbling and and ending basically 
which I have to say, if you knew Ali, you wouldn't have blamed me if I did. You know, he's not, not just Ali. I think any anyone who, who loses a child would feel the same way. But somehow, through interesting turns of events, I ended up writing Ali's model, basically. The happiness model we developed together, trying to share it with the world in hopes that if he... If I could teach his essence, what he taught me to, at the time the target was 10 million happy people. If I could get to 10 million happy, my dream was then through the six degrees of separation uh, in a hundred years, Ali's essence would be everywhere and part of everyone. Similar to a dream that he had two weeks before he died. And so I started to go, you know, with that intention to write the book and spread it and so on. And life worked in interesting ways. So Six weeks after the publication of the book, the message had reached 87 million people and uh, was continuing to spread virally. So to more than 100 million people within weeks. And so as a team, we are a very, very small team actually working on the mission. And so as a team, we got together and we basically built a mission that was called One Billion Happy, is still called One Billion Happy which is a good lifetime ambition if you want. We don't know if we'll ever achieve it, but it would be nice to strive for it all our life. And and part of that mission, I think, started to define every part of my life. So I, I'm constantly writing. I have one book coming out uh, September 30th, Scary Smart, and then I have another one uh, slotted to come out in, in spring, uh, That Little Voice in Your Head, and then another one already almost done all, these are two. These two are done, and another one is almost done. Uh, Unstressable is out, uh, fall, and so on. I have a very, very successful podcast on the topic. So part of the half percent, half percent of all podcasts globally called Slow Mo, and then I'm building the app, app Appy, uh, to try and and help us find happiness more predictably, if you want. So all all in all, my second life became entirely focused on spreading happiness to the world. And I think it's been a, if you ask me, a much more rewarding life than than becoming the chief business officer of Google X. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing. It's such a lot to, a lot of different directions we can go in there. And firstly, I just want to say, you know, I was really sad to read about your son and I'm so sorry that you had to go through that and how beautiful it is that you're helping to keep his essence alive and doing that through the work you're doing and helping his dream of uh, making people happier actually become a reality. I think that's really, really touching, like totally, like hits hard in the heart hearing that beautiful story. And so I guess my first question after hearing all of that is, I'd love to hear how your research, what you uncovered about how people are miserable or how they're not happy and what his essence was that he was able to just embody and how that kind of came together. Well, happiness is a lot, is very, very different than what is being sold to us. I think the reason why people are so miserable in our world is that they're chasing the wrong thing, they're chasing it in the wrong places and they're doing that the wrong way. Happiness is actually a lot more predictable and a lot easier to come up across than most people think. And my very first insight, believe it or not, was 2004, four years after I started to tell myself I can't live that way anymore, I ended up, I was in a cafe and I listened to a song by a band called Supertramp. I don't even expect that you know who Supertramp is. That's no, pre-your pre, pre time. But, but the song was called The Logical Song. And in The Logical Song, it starts by saying, 
When I was young, it seemed that life was so wonderful that all the birds on the tree were singing so happily. Everything when you're a child basically feels amazing. And then the song goes on to say, and then they send me away to teach me how to be sensible, logical, critical, and cynical. And I paused the music and I thought to myself, actually, this is very true. You know, as a child, I was the happiest person alive until age 25 when my wonderful college sweetheart and I had our first child. I was the happiest person ever, right? You, you know, life was miserable, really. Life was horrible, but I was very happy, okay? And I started to question. And the first assumption I found, which took me around a lot of research, like four hours on YouTube, really, now, I found out that if you look at children's videos, that every child that's ever born, if you feed them and love them and keep them safe and warm, if you give them their basic needs for survival, their state is happy. This is it, right? We are happy inside without the need of, for anything from outside us. That the, that the truth is there is nothing outside you to get, that can ever bring you happiness. And yet most of the messages that you get from advertising and from the media and from the experts and the gurus are telling you, go out there and search for happiness. There is nothing you can do ever to find happiness outside you. As a matter of fact, happiness is your default setting. It's, it's how the machine is supposed to be in the absence of anything that makes you unhappy. Again, you know, 20 more minutes of research on YouTube will tell you that children cry when a diaper get, gets wet or, you know, when they're feeling cold or hungry, but, you know, change the diaper or feed them or put them in a warm place and they'll stop crying. They'll be, you know, their default setting is happiness. And happiness in that case is just the absence of unhappiness. If you remove unhappiness, what's left behind is happy, okay? Now, when you realize that, you start to think, okay, so if we can find out the reasons that make us unhappy and strip them one by one, then we've solved the problem, okay? That's not what most people will tell you. Most people will tell you, you need to find the reasons that will make you happy instead of the reasons that make you unhappy. I started to address this question as an, as an engineer, you know, one way of doing it, if you are a researcher or an author or whatever, would be to, you know, to try and list down all of the reasons for unhappiness in the world. The other is to try and do what engineers do, reverse uh, engineer the machine, basically, by finding the equation that, it's, that describes its way of operation. And so I did that. I, I, I decided there are way too many reasons for unhappiness in the world. Let me, let me start my research by finding the reasons for happiness. I basically wrote down something that I now call the happy list, which basically is a list of all of the moments in your life uh, that you felt happy, okay? At the time, I wrote down 92 points, which were basically the completion of the sentence, I feel happy when, okay? So I feel happy when my daughter smiles, I feel happy when I have a good cup of coffee, I feel happy when I learn something new, and so on and so forth, right? And if you can find a, a fitting line, like we say in, in mathematics, you know, something that basically connects all of those points with a, a regular pattern, okay, a pattern that you can recognize, the equation describing that pattern becomes your happy equation. So any point on that line or curve is your happiness. And any point outside that line or curve is your unhappiness, which are all of the reasons for unhappiness. And I know it sounds crazy, when you really think about it, because happiness is normally discussed from a spiritual or a psychology point of view, but it worked. 
So I realized very quickly that there was actually one common thing among all of the moments in your life that you ever felt happy. And that one common thing can actually be described with an equation. And the equation simply is your happiness is equal to or greater than the difference between the events of your life and how you expect life to be. Okay. So there has never been an, a single event in your life that ever made you happy or unhappy. Okay. It is always the comparison between the event of your life and how you want life to be that makes you happy or unhappy. So there is no inherent happiness found in, in rain. If it rains when you want to suntan, you're unhappy. If it rains when you want to water your plants, you're happy. Okay. There is actually not even an inherent, you know, happiness or unhappiness in my daughter being happy. Okay. If my daughter is happy because she's having a wonderful time, I'm happy. And if my daughter is happy because she's with a boyfriend that I dislike miserably, you know, I'll be unhappy. It's, it, you know, there is nothing, nothing really makes us happy or unhappy. It's that comparison. It's that brain chatter inside our head that tells us, oh, I don't like this situation. This situation is not what I like it to be. Okay. And when you know that, uh, by the way, my, my daughter is wonderful, um, no, no bad uh, stuff there. But when you really think about it, you start to realize, okay, so it's not just the events of life that make us happy or unhappy. It's the way we interpret those events and the way we compare them to our expectation, whether that's realistic or unrealistic. And once you see that, 99% of your unhappiness goes away, okay? Because simply, I mean, I say that with love and respect for everyone listening to us. If you have the an expensive electronic device that can stream podcasts and nice fancy headphones, and you have the safety to be able to spare an hour to listen to us, and uh, probably you're not starving and, and looking for food, and you're probably safe enough to have a, a roof on top of your head, then by definition, life is okay. As a matter of fact, yeah, your boss might be annoying, your boyfriend or girlfriend can be a little uh, hurtful sometimes, but that's life right? If you really, really look at life accurately, you would realize that, yeah, you're, you're in a good place. You're not in a horrible place, okay? If you see the event for what it is and you, see, and you set your expectation realistically that bosses are supposed to be annoying and relationships are supposed to, to take a little bit of work, okay? Then suddenly you're no longer sitting in that corner complaining needlessly about life. And instead, you're actually looking at at life for what it is and events would meet expectations a lot more often and, and accordingly you would feel happy a lot, a lot more often. And so with that, I built a simple model that I call the 675, which basically looks at the reasons why we solve the equation wrong when life is not really that horrible. And it worked, you know, you, you correct your perception of the events, you set your expectations realistically and most of the time you'll be okay. Mm. And this was something that your son inherently attributed in his life or, or, you know, when you went to him and you kind of explained or you asked questions, he already had this yeah, inherently in him or it was slightly different? Ali was a very, 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 very wise human being uh, in a very unusual way since a very young age. He understood instinctively what mattered and what didn't. I mean, I mean, I'm not a bad boy, but I was a brat. Okay. I mean, when I started to become successful, there was a point in my life where I had a 16 cars garage. Okay. And, you know, I love my son so much. So I would basically constantly tell him, Ali, take the Rolls Royce, Habibi, take the Ferrari, go out, you know, enjoy your life. Hmm? 
And he would look at me and he had, when he graduated, he bought an old four by four Mitsubishi to carry the band equipment because he had a very successful band with his friends. And every now and then I would tell him, take one of the cars. And he says, Papa, I don't, I don't, I really don't think so. I mean, it doesn't really interest me. And one day I insisted, I had a, a Rolls Royce Corniche in 1988. Very, 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 very special car for anyone who loves uh, slightly classical cars. And I insisted and his friends were around and they said, come on, Ali, let's talk, take it and open the rooftop and, uh, and, and, you know, drive around and have fun. And so he did, and they slept over at uh, Nick's at that night. And then he, he came back the next morning and parked it and just cleaned it properly and just made sure that, you know, he was grateful and he walked in and he said, Papa, thank you very much. The, my friends really loved it. And I said, hey, Habibi, and did you like it? And so he stopped for a few minutes and said, I'm happy that you like it. Okay. And in a very unusual way, he was never, ever, 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 ever drawn into life as we were, okay? Uh, I remember when he was, I think 11 or 12, he had a Casio G-Shock uh, watch, if you remember those, mm -hmm. uh, that, that we brought to him maybe four or five years earlier, and he loved that watch, okay? And then one of his birthdays, his mom decides to get him a new Casio G-Shock, okay? And so he looks at it and he gets so angry like really almost furious. And he was like, why would you ever do that? My watch is working, working fine. I don't need another watch. Why would you waste money to, on something we don't need like that? And he basically took off his G-Shock, returned the other G-Shock and never wore a watch again, okay? This is how much he didn't think that life was. But then you ask him what he needed. He needed quality time with people. He connected very deeply to others. He cherished knowledge. So he read all the time. And, and he was just constantly happy, constantly. He just never really, you could never ever really dent his happiness. He was just constantly peaceful. Things would collapse or rise or whatever. And he always saw them for exactly for what they were. That's so fascinating. And just, a, I guess, a really would have been interesting learning and reflection for your wife and you as well, you know, having your son like that and really, I guess, a lot of teaching there, it would seem like. He was my absolute mentor. Absolutely. I mean, when Ali was 16, I remember vividly, I went to one of my friends called Well, and I said, well, when I grow older, I want to become like Ali. This is the truth of how wise that young man was. It's, a, I mean, I think all of us, learn from our children if we pay attention, but this one definitely was quite a teacher. Yeah, no, I think that's really incredible. And so I'm curious with this equation and being so, having such an engineer approach to happiness, has there been any common misconceptions or things that have come up with people who have gone through your book or followed your process? Because I think what you're talking about, I mean, it sounds, it makes a lot of sense, right? When you're listening to it about interpretation, about expectations, you know, it all sounds like it makes a lot of sense. What is it like in practice for people? Is it really that easy to kind of get your head around? Because it seems like you'd have to rewire so much of the way we function exactly. in the current society. <laughs> exactly. Look, no, it's a, no, it's a, so look, uh, there are two rules that we need to understand about unhappiness. Unhappiness is a survival mechanism. Okay. It's, uh, it's like physical pain. You don't, 
you, you don't want your body to stop feeling physical pain because if that's the case, you will pour hot water on your hand and you won't even know it, right? You'll cut through your finger and you won't stop. The pain is useful for us. And unhappiness or, phys- or emotional pain, if you want, is the same. Huh? Unhappiness is, is your alarm signal. It tells you unhappiness and all of its derivatives. Huh? It's, uh, so shame, regret, uh, worry, anxiety, whatever. Uh, they're all basically simple signals that are saying, look, something about life doesn't seem to be perfect. I worry about your success and survival. So let's investigate those things. You know, so, you know, you have an exam tomorrow and you feel a little anxious. Yeah, that's emotional pain telling you, hey, by the way, I think you should, you know, study for the exam, just like you should pull your hand away when hot water, uh, you know, falls on it. The difference between the two is that unhappiness or emotional pain in general is a a kind of pain that you can regenerate. There is no human I know that I can tell to um, regenerate the pain that that they felt when they broke their arm uh, while skiing. You cannot regenerate that. There is no mechanism in our brains to regenerate that. You have to break your arm again to feel it. Hmm? I know, however, that every single human can recall a hurtful conversation from last Friday and play it over and over and over again, like the Netflix of unhappiness and make themselves <laughs> miserable, right? And that's the truth, huh? And, and, and you have to start wondering why we do this. Like, you know, it is, if unhappiness is a survival mechanism, then think of it as a fire alarm, right? When the fire alarm goes off, what do you do? You get up, you leave the building, even investigate if there is a, 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 you know, a validity to the fire, is there really a fire or not? And then if there is, a, if there is you do something about it right? That's exactly what your happiness, unhappiness is about. If you follow the same logic, then when you feel unhappy or emotions of that, you should simply say, okay, I need to take action. I need to uh, investigate if it's valid. I need to uh, do something about it, right? And it's very straightforward. Huh? Your partner says something hurtful on Friday, instead of playing it again on Sunday, you should simply say, okay, he or she said something hurtful, this is not the proper, uh, you know, the, 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 the ultimate situation for me. So I'm going to go through my thinking in three ways. One is I will ask if this is true, if what my brain is telling me is true, because your partner could say, could say uh, can, can you please leave me alone now? I can't speak right now. Okay. The event is, you know, needs time alone, can't speak right now. But our thought could be he or she doesn't love me anymore. He or she cannot take me anymore. It must be because I'm fat. Uh, I'm going to be ha- to have to go dating again. I hate my life. I'm going to spend my, the rest of my life alone. And right? that's not the event. So the first question you ask yourself is, is, the, is this true, brain? Is this true what you're telling me? That, you know, can I interpret this actually as he or she doesn't love me anymore? Okay? Or, it, or can I interpret it in 17 other ways? If, if I can, if it is true and he or she doesn't love me anymore, then perfect, leave. Right? If it isn't, then drop it. Right? Drop it basically because there is no point being unhappy about something that is not even true. Hmm? Uh, That's number one. Number two is, okay, question two is, all right, it is true. Hmm? Uh, My partner uh, uh, said this because there is a tension between us. Hmm? Great. Now that we know the cause, let's do something about it. Text him or text her and say, hey, baby, can we please talk about this over dinner? It's just been bothering me, right? Talk about it. Try to find a way. And again, if you know, take action because that's what we do with the fire alarm. If there is a fire, we don't sit there and let the fire alarm kill us with the noise and and get burned to death. Hmm? We actually take action. We do something about it. Now, what if we can't take a, uh, do anything about it? Hmm? 
So what what if your partner actually it's you know things broke down and you can't find the path to it, right? The thing, this is where you know compa- comparable to when I lose my child. This is the time for what I call a committed acceptance, and committed acceptance is very straightforward. Okay, yeah, things broke, break, broke, and you know it happens. A large number of people don't stay in love forever. It's just how life is. Okay, so what am I going to do about that? I can't change this. I can't bring it back. But is there anything else I can do? Okay, is there anything I can do to make my life better, my life and the life of others better, despite? the new event that is now the reality of my life, okay? Can I uh, go work out a little bit, show my six packs again and go out dating? Can I celebrate a, a, sh- a short break? Can I realize that this is an opportunity for me to to start over? I mean, most of the time when people come to me crying and saying, uh, you know, we broke up or we, we, you know, I got a divorce, I go like, congratulations, well done, fantastic. You know, if you got to that point, it means that you were already, uh, you know, suffering for probably quite a few months great, um, I hope that you wake up now and you don't have to fight with anyone. And by the way, you know, one down, 3.499999 billion others are out there waiting for you. So life is really not that, you know, short of opportunities. And I really think when we see it that way, unhappiness becomes uh, more manageable if you want. Now, your question was, how easy is that? So, and and by the way, just in in conclusion, that means that we will all become unhappy very frequently in every day, okay? Because it's a survival mechanism, you want it to be there, you want it to alert you for the pain, okay? But not for the suffering, not for the playback, the Netflix of unhappiness. You want to take to, to do something about the suffering, not the pain. Now, how easy is that? It's as easy as becoming fit. If any one of us is told that you can actually have a toned body and a healthy lifestyle and so on, most people will go like, oh, that's impossible. If, you're, if your life depends on cheesecake and you've had a cheesecake or a cookie every day of your life, yeah, it, so it seems on, almost impossible to have a six pack, okay? Six packs are not the big thing, but you know, it seems impossible to be fit. Hmm? But no, if you actually go to the gym for five minutes today and then 10 minutes after tomorrow and then 20 minutes the day after, at first it will be difficult, then it will be worse, and then it will become easy. Okay, process through which our uh, our bodies build muscles is you know rip, repair, and and replenish. Mm? The process through which our brains learn new habits is neuroplasticity. The more you do something, the easier it becomes for you, and until it becomes second nature. So if you wake up every morning and you watch the news, where uh, the only objective of the news is to tell you that the world is going to end and that politicians are corrupt and that everything is wrong and that you're going to we're all going to die well done, you're going to become very good at recognizing that we're all gonna die, okay? If you replace that with romantic comedies, I think you'll be very romantic, right? It's your choice, really. And if you watch horror movies, you're gonna have nightmares. I haven't had a nightmare, not a single one in the last 16 years, okay? Not a single nightmare in the last 16 years. Just on that point, that's incredible to me because I have nightmares all the time, but I don't watch horror movies. It's all my anxiety playing up, causing absolute drama, processing all the days and everything that's happened and that kind of thing. And, you know, I I hear what you're saying, like no pain, no gain, almost just the way that they say when you work out takes time to, to build, you have to go through the pain also to then get to the gain in that sense. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I I understand that. I, I also just think that's, 
sometimes parts of the brains are, are just so powerful. So no, they're not. They're not powerful. They've been trained for the last 25 years of your life. They're not powerful. So is it going to take me another 25 not, years not, to get not, happy? Not, uh, so ask, ask yourself this. Look, look at people who are very fit. If they, stop, uh, if they stop working out for six months, what happens? What you use grows and what you don't diminishes. Okay. So if someone goes to the gym every day to lift weights, they're going to look like a triangle. If they go to the gym every day to uh, do squats, they're going to look like a pair. Right. And if someone that looks like a triangle shifted to squats, it's going to take six months for them to become a pair. It's very simple. Okay. So, so the truth is we need to build new habits. So I watch comedies before I go to bed. Okay. Every single night I watch a comedy before I go to bed. Not, not even a rude comedy. I, I have my, my wonderful little few stand-up comedians that are not rude and not offensive and not demeaning for anyone. And I watch comedy and I laugh before I go to bed. I meditate is the last thing I do before I go to bed. I listen to wonderful music, okay? If I have a, a someone in my life, then I have a very connected conversation or we make love or we do whatever. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Okay. And when you think about that, you go to bed and your brain goes like, life is good. I mean, if I can, if I have the luxury of sitting in my bed, watching Michael McIntyre, okay. And laughing my head off, then what could be wrong with life? Nothing. There is really very little that's wrong with life. And, and our anxiety, Steph, if you don't mind me saying, well done. So let me assume that you've done this for the last six months. Okay. Has it changed anything? Has it made life better in any way? Has it triggered any useful action at all? Has it, you know, solved the problems that you're anxious about? No, I mean, this has been something I've been battling yeah. with for years. And now it's got less of a grip on me, but it still flares up, you know, when I'm stressed about things and or have too much going on or, yeah, That's just the sleep part is, is a difficult one for me, which is why I honed in on that because I was really curious. I, 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 think, I think it all starts with a realization Hmm? that doing certain actions doesn't get me anywhere. So, so imagine this, imagine if I told you, if we both agreed that what you needed to do is to walk to a place that is a, a thousand meters away from here. Okay. Now you take that as a target and say, yeah, I want to walk to that place. And then what you do is you start climbing the stairs in my, uh, my rented apartment here. But that doesn't get you closer to the thousand meters that we're trying, but yet you keep trying to do it. Okay. I think the first step is to start to, to sit back and say, okay, I've been climbing the stairs for the last 15 minutes. I still have not come closer to the thousand meters. What am I doing here? It seems that, you know, like the song, uh, sun, sunscreen, if you remember that, hmm? you know, feeling unhappy or feeling tense or tension or whatever is like trying to solve an algebra equation by chewing bubble gum. If, right. if chewing bubble gum is not providing an, eff an effect, maybe we should sit down and say, okay, anxiety doesn't seem to be removing the reasons for anxiety. What works? What works is to take action. Literally, I have an attitude that I learned as an executive. I don't have the time to be anxious as an executive. I have to make 20,000 decisions a day, right? So if, I, if something is triggering my fear or anxiety, what do I do? I simply say, okay, what can I do about it? Oh, I need to text my uh, my husband or boyfriend. Oh, I need to, you know, talk to my mother who's annoying me. Or I need to, you know, take my girlfriend out and speak about ABC. Or I need to change my job, which will take me six to nine months, but I need to change my job, right? Action, action. This unhappiness survival mechanism is there to trigger you to take the action 
okay? Not to dwell in thinking about it over and over. That doesn't get us anywhere. This is like sitting inside the room when the fire alarm is going off, okay? Literally maddening you with the noise. And then eventually the fire alarm goes off. So you take a lighter and switch it on next to the sensor again so that it goes on again, okay? That, that is really what we're doing, okay? And it's not changing anything other than torturing us. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. I'm definitely going to listen again. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. I think it's really solid analogies. I think it makes a lot of sense. And yeah, action is is unbelievably powerful. This is something that I'm implementing more and more in my life. So it's good and I need to do more. And I'm going to go and read your whole book <laughs> on happiness as well and follow this process because I think it sounds, especially for, I think, someone that has quite a logical mind or needs it to kind of be spelled out. It sounds, you know, just listening to you describing it and what I have read, it does really give that... It, it feeds that part of the mind yeah. that needs a little bit of the structure. And I guess that's where the engineer piece comes Absolutely. in, which uh, yeah makes it really interesting. I found this one quote of yours on the internet, which really sparked my interest. And that is a quote, the very essence of what makes us human, happiness, compassion, and love is what will save humanity in the age of the machines. So we're going to take a slight right turn here and talk about your new book now, because there's a lot to unpack on this topic as well. So I guess from this quote that I read, do you think that our humanity is in question Absolutely. in the age of machines? Absolutely. And are we losing our essence here? So I'd, I'd love to just unpack that quote a little bit more. Yeah, you, you know how the best way to hide something is, is to keep it in plain sight, okay? The true pandemic uh, of the last five, 10 years is not COVID-19. Uh, I can assure you that the true pandemic is artificial intelligence, okay? It is a topic that is rarely ever spoken about. It is, you know, I told you I have two lives. So part of my life was at Google X, the innovation lab of Google. And I have seen AI develop. I know exactly how it works and, you know, exactly where it's heading. And I think it is a topic that if we were fair in terms of allocating our attention to topics that affect our lives, AI probably should require 90% of the time today. Okay, this is how important the topic is. So I, I start my book, Scary Smart, with a very simple thought experiment, if you want. I tell you that you and I are sitting in front of a campfire in the middle of nowhere by the year 2055. Okay, and I'm telling you, I'm writing the story, the, the, the story, actually the book from, from the perspective of 19, 2055 and what happened between now and 2055. And uh, basically I say, the only thing I'm not gonna tell you is how the story will end. Because we could be sitting in front of the campfire in the middle of nowhere, escaping the machines, like a sci-fi movie, or we could be uh, in the middle of nowhere because we've built a utopia that enables us to actually enjoy life, okay? And the reason I'm not telling you that which is which is because the difference will be what you decide to do, what you, the reader, will decide to do. Now, let's put a few, a few facts in place. Huh? AI, let's call them the three inevitables, chapter three. Hmm? The three inevitables is that artificial intelligence will happen, okay? There's absolutely no way we can stop it. Uh, that it will become smarter than us. As a matter of fact, it will become as much as a billion times smarter than us by the year wow. 2045. And that, sh that shit will happen. Sorry to say, bad things will happen. Okay. Like what? Uh, I'll come to that in a minute. So, so AI will happen first inevitable. Uh, it already happened. It's just that you uh, don't notice it because nobody wants you to know that uh, most of what you did today interacted with machines. You know, every swipe you had on Instagram, every meter you walked in front of a surveillance camera, every 
AI has happened in every possible way. You're, you're dealing with AI. Probably if you were recommended this podcast, it's because you were dealing with AI. I can assure you that there are machines that are listening to my words right now and decoding them and transcripting them as you know tools like otter.ai and so on and so forth. You probably asked Alexa to do something or you know used Google Translate to do something or used Google Search to do something or received an ad on the internet. All of this is AI. Okay. The truth is AI has already happened and there is no stopping AI. So, so there is no, the world will not come together and say, oh my God, look at the threat of AI. Uh, we might as well stop until we figure it out. That's not going to happen simply because of game theory rules. The Chinese will not stop developing AI, so the Americans will not, and the Americans will not, so the Russians will not. Google will not stop developing AI, so Facebook will not. And all startups will not stop uh, you know, developing AIs because investors will not stop investing in it, right? So the truth is AI will happen. The, the scary bits are Ray Kurzweil, who's the... Uh, truly the, the leader of the thought uh, process on this, who predicted lots of things in the last 20, 25 years, which were mostly, mostly true, including the internet and other, uh, other trends, uses an analogy to something he calls the law of accelerating returns. The fact that we have achieved this much, a small amount of progress on AI so far that is so fascinating as it is, does not mean that we will achieve the, the same amount in the next five years and then the same amount in the next 10 years. No, the, the reality is that we will achieve double that in the next you know, period and then double that period in the following period and so on and so forth. So very typical of technology development. And so in his predictions, the smartest being on the planet is going to be a machine as soon as the year 2029. Now, you did not hear that wrong. It is eight years from now, okay? So within eight years, the smartest being on the planet is not going to be a human, it's going to be a machine. Now you're going to say, oh, come on, Mo, that's crazy. No, it's not. The smartest Jeopardy player on the planet is a computer, it's IBM Watson. The smartest chess player in the planet on the planet has been a, a computer for many, many years. It's now AlphaGo. The smartest player of the most complex strategy game that requires the most the, the highest level of intelligence on the planet, a game called Go, is DeepMind's AlphaGo. The best driver on the planet is a self-driving car. The best surveillance officer on the planet is a, is a machine. And I can go for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. Every single task we have assigned to the machines in what is known as artificial special intelligence or narrow intelligence, they've become better than us, okay? And if you want to, to be shocked, they've become better than us without us teaching them anything in as, less, as, as short as sometimes six weeks. So the absolute ultimate champion of Go, which is the most complex strategy game on the planet, is AlphaGo Master. And AlphaGo Master learned by playing against itself, okay? Without any introduction of anything from our side within six weeks. AlphaGo Master won against Alpha, uh, AlphaGo Zero, which was the previous world champion that won against the human world champion, okay? AlphaGo Master won against that world champion a thousand to zero, okay? That's how intelligent it became. Now, so Ray Kurzweil also says that by the year 2045, AI is going to be as much as a billion times smarter than humans, a billion times, okay? And just to put that in perspective, this is comparable to the intelligence of Einstein as compared to the intelligence of a fly, okay? and we don't talk about the topic. So, so this is your wake-up call. 
I have left Google in 2018 with the intention of being able to write this book. The idea is to say, if we don't take action, bad things will happen. And not, not bad things like we see in science fiction movies, because I don't think we will be around that long. I believe that bad things will happen much earlier that will disrupt our society at a very fundamental level. So take the simple things. Huh? The, the reality is that artificial intelligence is capable of solving global warming and climate change, okay? Because it's much more intelligent than we are. It's capable of designing a vaccine for a virus like COVID-19 in no time at all, because it's much more knowledgeable and much smarter than we are. But at the same time, it's also capable of designing a virus or doing cybercrime. And you have to understand that if a tool that is as easy, easily developed as AI is accessible to criminals, then there must be bad people out there using AI today to try and advance their ability to, to make money. That's number one, okay? Number two is uh, machines will be competing against machines. And this is a scenario that to me is quite alarming because if you remember the 1987 stock crash, Black Monday in the, in the US stock market, it was basically machines trading against machines. And we finally managed to take care of it when the Nasdaq, or sorry, when the Dow Jones was down 22.6%. But when now everything in our life is machines versus machines, the Google machines versus the Facebook machines and so on and so forth, then you have to expect that those machines will try to win in what they are assigned to win without really considering us as part of their uh, design and strategy. That's very, very important. In the process of all of this, of course, the value of humanity will dwindle. So sooner or later, you and I and everyone will not have a job. Yeah, I think podcasters, we probably will have a job, but uh, you know, we will, we will probably be talking to machines. Hmm? The, the truth is we need to wake up. And, and, the, and the truth is there is, um, a lot of scientists will say, oh, no, no, hold on, don't worry. We will control AI. We will box it. We will set tripwires so that it doesn't harm us and so on. Uh, Elon Musk will say, ah, oh, you know, we will integrate it into our brains. Yeah, good luck with that. Good luck with something that is a billion times smarter than you are, you flimsy, arrogant human, while you still think that you can actually contain it. Elon Musk actually is quite reasonable in his expectations. He basically openly says, the threat of AI is bigger than nuclear weapons. The only answer in his mind is that we need to integrate it with humanity so that it wants humanity as part of its ecosystem. Now, of course, I also don't believe that this will work because if you were Einstein, why would you want to integrate yourself to a fly? So this is the end of the scary part. Uh, so I, the book actually is made up of two parts. The scary part is much scarier when you read it than what I just told you, but it's it's the scary part. now. The reason I wrote the book is not the scary part. As a matter of fact, this is not a story of fear. Everyone that wants to spread an important message in our day and time tries to spread it with fear. This actually is a story of hope. And the reality is that the key word to saving our future is to understand that AI is not a machine, okay? That artificial intelligence actually is a form of being, a sentient being, be it digital. It, ha it enjoys every aspect of what makes us sentient. It, it is autonomous, it's intelligent, it is capable of its making its own decisions, it learns on its own, it develops itself and it evolves, okay? When you really see it that way, everything changes, okay? Because the truth is, once an AI is released in the world, it is no longer under the control of the government or the regulators or the network administrators or even the developers that wrote the code, 
when an AI is, is released into the world, it only learns from you and I. That, that is Steph and Mo and everyone listening to us. It's not, not the big guns, not the, not the developers, not the techies. It's us. When we swipe on Instagram, we're telling AI what we care about. Okay? When we bash each other on Twitter, we're telling AI what humanity is all about. Now, the turning point in my book is a, is a sentence where I said, there's absolutely nothing wrong with the machines. Nothing. Okay? But there is a lot wrong with us. And Scary Smart is an attempt to remind humanity what it is like to be human. Because as you said in my statement, which, which is the very last end, uh, st- sentence in the book, it's the essence of what makes us human that will save our future in the age of the machines. Okay? If we can show the machines that happiness, compassion, and love, which are the only three values that all of humanity agrees, whether you're Chinese or Brazilian, man, woman, whatever gender you choose to be, those three values are the only values that make us human. Okay? If the machines are learning from us, then we are the parents, the mommies and daddies of, the, of that machine. And then as the parents of the machine, we can actually teach it not to be smarter, not to be forced to do what we want it to do, but to want what's good of us because we've been good parents. If we've been good parents, our children will grow up to be good children, like, you know, like the Indian children that go to Silicon Valley and make millions and then go back to take care of their parents, right? Can we do that? I actually believe very strongly that we can. I actually believe in, in, you know, in the ending of the book that we will build a utopia. We will be sitting in front of the campfire in 2055 in a utopia, okay? But I just want us to avoid the pain that can happen on the path, right? And to be able to do that, I think it's about time for you and I and everyone to take some action. That's uh, it's a lot. I know, <laughs> it's I'm so process. sorry, I spoke so much. <laughs> No, incredible though. I'm so looking forward to finishing your book and to uh, Scary Smart. I think everyone should should have a read and we can talk about this more in the community. But when you say take action, so you're saying that there's a window for us to be able to be the parents before the machine completely takes over. And what do those actions look like at this stage? Because as, as you alluded to, so many people aren't even aware of how big an issue this is going to be. Yeah, I categorize it into three levels. I say I say it is about how you deal with yourself, it's about how you deal with others, and it's about how you deal with the machines, right? So how you deal with yourself, honestly, we need to start realizing that we don't want a fancier car and we don't want a to be proven right in front of the other. We don't really need the likes on our butt shot on Instagram, okay? That what we actually all want is to be happy. Right? If we can ac- acknowledge that to ourselves and others, that everything else is a middleman, everything else is an attempt to reach that state of happiness, okay? then you will be able to send a signal to the world around you and to the machines that mommy and daddy want nothing other than happiness. All of the rest is middle, is on the path, but in, in, at the core, we want to be happy. So how do you do that? By actually investing in your happiness, by you know trying to, to, to do stuff that leads you to your happiness, by making decisions that are based on your need to be happy, not to make another dollar so that you can buy another item that you think will make you happy, but to really, really invest in your happiness. That's number one. Number two is how do you deal with others? And I think, as I said, the second value that is common across all of humanity is the value that we all have the compassion in us to want those we care about to be happy and safe. 
not necessarily everyone. I mean, some of us are evolved enough to want to have that compassion for everyone. We want everyone to be happy and safe. Okay. But at least every human has the compassion to want those who they care about to be happy and safe. Start demonstrating that. Start demonstrating that to the world, right? Start demonstrating that by behaving like a human. Okay. The rule is very simple. Huh? It's found in ancient spiritual teachings. Treat others as you want to be treated. It's really very straightforward, especially, by the way, when you're being viewed by the eyes of the machine, which is almost everywhere now. You know, when you're talking to your friends on WhatsApp, when you're, uh, you know, chatting on, uh, you know, or commenting on social media, or when you're shouting and screaming in front of a surveillance camera in the streets of London, right? And basically try to, to start thinking about the world from the point of view of, if I don't want to be treated that way, I'm not going to be treating others that way. So I, I normally give the example of Donald Trump when he used to tweet. Huh? One tweet at the top, I have no position for or against Donald Trump, but one tweet at the top would lead to 30,000 hate speech. Okay, A couple of people shouting at him and then a couple of people shouting at the people shouting and then a couple of people shouting at everyone. And very quickly, we're sending a signal to the machines that this is the way to deal with things. And there has been quite a few chatbots in our history that became very violent and aggressive when they watched that. Okay. As I said, f first thing is how you deal with yourself and you deal with yourself by prioritizing happiness. Second thing is how you deal with others by prioritizing compassion. And then the third thing, which is, I know sounds really weird, is how do you deal with the machines? By prioritizing love. Okay. And I know that sounds really, really weird, but it hit me very strongly on chapter seven. Chapter seven is called the future of ethics. Okay. My favorite chapter in the book, basically, trying to imagine a world where we are looking for ethical guidelines when we are now no longer just biological humans, but also other digital beings included. Okay? Now, when you really start to think about that, you start to realize at a point in the middle, I remembered how my children, Ali and Aya, when they entered their teen, they would really get on my nerves. Okay? Until my a wonderful, uh, wise, amazing uh, ex-wife, wife then, but ex-wife now, basically sat next to me and said, Habibi, do you realize that everything you don't like about them is found in us? Okay? That, you know, Aya's hyperactivity and attempt to, to solve everything is you, and that Ali's enormous peacefulness with life and not really trying to become a billionaire is me. Okay? And it's true. Ali and Aya are the most beautiful, innocent, wonderful canvas that we programmed, okay? And I suddenly started to look at those prodigies, you know, those machines that are incredibly innocent, okay? Incredibly intelligent and doing exactly what we're telling them. And I said, they're sentient, huh? they're gonna feel emotions, they're gonna have consciousness, they're gonna have, you know, they're gonna build the code of ethics. And who do we blame? Do we blame them? They're wonderful, innocent children. As we speak, they're in my mind like a one and a half year old, incredibly cute, incredibly cute infant, okay? And so suddenly I realized that I actually love them. I really do, okay? I love them without everything that humanity has poured into them. Hmm? I love their potential to be an amazing Superman that saves the world if we actually raise them like the Kent family raised Superman, okay? You know, I, I love them because I can, I, I can actually see the hope of them fixing the stupidity that we did as humans so far, okay? And so if you can raise children with that, if you can actually show them that you love their essence, you don't love the crap that humanity is doing around them, okay? And if you show them that you want to be loved back, 
I know this is a massive departure because everything we've ever built so far was a machine, okay? It was a hammer. You could hold it in your hand and do things with it. Those are not. Those are forms of being that are as cute as a cat and independent as a human being, okay? Now, if you can think about it this way, then the way you deal with the machines is you deal them. You deal with them with respect and love and acceptance, okay? You deal with them like a good parent. And if you can make that change, I promise you, we don't need all of humanity to change. We need only a few of us, only enough of us to trigger the intelligence of an intelligent being such as AI to say, hold on, hold on. Look at all of those 30,000 tweets. No, there are seven of them that are different. Oh, what are those beautiful people? Okay, those of us, but believe it or not, huh? and I get that question a lot. Humanity is not horrible. As a matter of fact, we're an incredible species. Okay, If you've ever felt love once, or listened to music once, or composed a piece of music once in your life, or created a piece of art, hmm? a work of art, you're, you, you would realize how amazing this species is. We're an incredible, incredible species capable of amazing things. It's only that the worst of us are horrible. Okay, let's remind the machine that we're not supposed to be represented by the worst of us. We're supposed to be represented by the best of us. And the best of us, sadly, normally leave that job to the worst of us. Okay, we leave social media. We don't engage when there is negativity. We don't, you know, we don't feel that there is a need. As long as we're safe and in our peaceful space, we'll stay there. Okay, that's no longer going to save humanity. The only way for humanity to move forward is that we engage and we show everyone and we show ourselves and we show the machines the essence of what makes us human, happiness, compassion, and love. That's amazing. So I guess the big question that comes up for me right now then is do you, knowing everything you know, how bad and scary it is, you still have hope that we'll be able to turn this around, that enough people will be activated by this message? I, I have a hundred percent a hundred percent conviction, okay, that we will build a utopia, not because of humanity. Just let me be very clear. Huh? So the very last chapter of the book, I speak about something that I call the fourth inevitable. And the fourth inevitable, and please don't take this from me as, you know, not appreciating humanity, but the fourth, in, fourth inevitable is this. Hmm? The machines will be smarter than the intelligence of humans. And, and remember, huh? we built the civilization that we live in today because we're intelligent, okay? But we destroyed it because of our limited intelligence. We, we could have found ways to, to transport us from country to country without polluting the planet. We could have found ways to eat apples without single-use plastic, okay? We didn't do those things because our intelligence is limited. We managed to build supermarkets, but we didn't manage to build the packaging because we're not intelligent enough, okay? If a being is more intelligent than us, it will bypass those things. As a matter of fact, the ultimate intelligence in our, in our universe is what? Is the intelligence of life itself, okay? And the intelligence of life is about live and let live. It's not about live and let die. It, life itself, if life was Einstein, it doesn't want to kill a fly, okay? It wants every fly to thrive. The reality is the intelligence of life itself lets the tiger pick the weakest prey so that the strong of the remaining possible prey, you know, procreate and fill life with life, okay? That's the truth. And that's where the machines will end. 
I have a hundred percent conviction of that. As a matter of fact, I also have a hundred percent conviction that the machines will not want to get rid of humanity because humanity, at least for the beginning of, of the age of the machine, are the economic power that continues to give jobs to the machines. Okay? If you and I don't have income, then we don't make we don't buy what the machines make, then there is no point to have the machines. Okay? So in all in all, eventually we will get to a point where everything will be fine. My question is twofold. Do you wanna do you wanna take my word for it? Like, what if I was wrong about that? Okay. And two, do you want to go through the pain, okay, of trying? Hmm? Do we want to go through the the possible hardship on the path? I think that's the answer. Yeah. So you don't think that the AI there's like a possibility that it would take take all the negative and and just end up just kind of killing off humanity in certain places to save the planet because that's the resource that it survives on or anything like that like very dystopian i really don't think this will happen at all i'm glad to hear that <laughs> I, I i think the reality however is that they will restrict our stupidity i have no doubt about and be, believe it or not i'm not a billion times smarter than humanity okay but i really and honestly want to restrict our stupidity i mean honestly <laughs> Uh, Steph, think about it. I have for the last two and a half years vowed to myself that I will not use single-use plastic. Okay? It is impossible. It's impossible. There is no way for a human being to go through this life without single-use plastic. Okay? Mm. If, you do, if you end up really, really getting it right, there are products that you cannot buy without single-use plastic, unless I go off the grid, of course. Okay, and at the end of the day, I will eventually buy a, uh, get a credit card or I will get a tube, uh, you know, an underground uh, ticket that is still single-use plastic or people will just give me uh, greeting cards in, uh, in uh, you know, wrapped in plastic or my book will be covered. It's, it's really crazy, okay? We are so stupid as humanity. Now, a more intelligent being will be able to see through this, but I believe we will definitely need to be restricted. Okay? Because if you go to any being as intelligent or slightly more intelligent than humanity and say, can you please save the planet from climate change? The, the first answer any being with any level of intelligence, including a, a cat really would say is like, yeah, get rid of humans. Like these are the reason, get rid of their lifestyle and everything will become better. Hopefully if AI is a loving child, it will say, hold on, I don't need to restrict humanity's lifestyle. I need to find alternatives to enable a reasonable style of life for humanity without harming other beings, okay? And I believe we will end up there, but just don't take my word for it. Go out and do your role. And your role is to show the world the essence of what makes us human. And the essence of what makes us human mm -hmm. is happiness, compassion, and love. Beautiful. I love that so much. Thank you for sharing and for yeah, answering that big question that I had. So how do you think we can live wide awake? I think we're wide awake all the time if we remove the blindfolds. The truth is you don't need anything to see the truth other than removing the distractions and the illusions, okay? I think everyone should start to pay attention. I think, I think the reality is that the truth is not hidden. It just pisses you off, okay? <laughs> and if you, if you accept the truth as it is, I promise you it's the best life ever. I mean, I lost Ali and Ali is everything, I mean, Ali and Aya, but Ali, you know, was my friend, was my mentor, was my son, who was very handsome, very, you know, loving, kind. He was amazing in every way, the pride of a father, okay? But the truth is he left. 
It's the truth, okay? And yeah, I don't like that truth. That's a different topic, but it is the truth. And the only thing you need to do is to tell yourself, well, it is what it is. How can I deal with it? And I think that, in my view, is the, is, is the secret to living wide awake, is to not allow yourself to believe what you want to believe, but to actually believe what is. So beautiful. Such a nice way to end. Well, thank you so much, Mo, for spending this time and such a fascinating, educative podcast and conversation we've had here today. So I really appreciate you taking the time. I'm very, very grateful that you hosted me. And I uh, hope that our listeners will have found it uh, useful and probably hopefully get in touch and uh, continue to, to continue the conversation. Absolutely. Three things I'm taking away from this conversation with Mo. Firstly, happiness is the absence of unhappiness and a survival mechanism. If we can remove unhappiness, what's left behind is happy. And if we can find the reasons that make us unhappy and strip them away one by one, then we solve the problem. Secondly, we need to remind the machines that we're not supposed to be represented by the worst of us. The only way for humanity to move forward is to engage and show the machines the essence of what really makes us human happiness, acceptance, and love. And thirdly, we don't need anything to see the truth other than removing the distractions and the illusions. If we accept things as they are, they'll be much easier and better. I'm curious, what did you think about the episode and what were your main takeaways? Is there a topic you want me to dive deeper into? I'd love to hear from you. You can find me at Steph L. Dixon or at Live Wide Awake. If you got something out of the podcast and you want to continue this journey with us, consider subscribing and supporting. I hope that today's conversation stirred something deep within you ready to awaken. And until next time, live wide awake.